in any such situation where something is so resistant to even the beginnings of clarity, it is wisdom to begin by determining what that something is not. And that is the task of the next chapter. That is also the task of this next episode. Welcome to the God of Honeybees podcast. I'm Justin Herb, and I'm glad you're here. On this episode, we are into part two of the origin of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind by Julian Jaynes. Uh, really quick, I just wanted to remind you about Patreon. You can find the podcast on patreon.com by just searching the name. There's only one tier, which is five bucks a month. Um, helps keep the website up and whatnot. And if I'm able to reach my goal on there, then I can actually do a separate podcast where I just take your questions um, and then we'll do a patron-only podcast show where we address those questions fully. I also want to thank my wife for setting up what you see behind me, my new podcast rig. If you follow me on Instagram, earlier I posted a picture of the new setup and then she set up this whole backdrop behind me. So thanks to my wife. So with that, let's get into it. In this episode, we will be examining what consciousness is not, according to Julian's interpretation. Julian starts the chapter by explaining what he thinks is a common misconception regarding consciousness. He states that when we consider what consciousness is, we become conscious of consciousness. We then assume that awareness of being aware is what consciousness is. According to Julian, this would be an error. We assume that consciousness is the basis of all concepts, learning, our reasoning, our judgments, etc. And since this aspect of awareness seems to store and then recall our memories, our opinions, our judgments... We think that this is us, but is it really? That's what we're going to examine in this episode. Julian points out that there are some common uses of the word of consciousness that are at best a misnomer, if not outright incorrect. For example, a person getting knocked out is said to have lost consciousness. However, like I said in the last episode, there are so many cases of what Julian calls, I don't know if I can even pronounce this, pronounce this word, somambulistic experiences. So I guess it's experiences while you're asleep, uh, where a person is not conscious, but is still reactive to outside stimuli. Uh, So this indicates that there's a distinction between consciousness as being awake and reactivity. Because we, there, like I said, there's these examples of being reactive to outside occurrences while you're asleep. Julian points out that we're not always conscious of what our body is reacting to as well, even when we're awake. For example, your body makes numerous changes to the placement of your body weight while you walk around or you stand. And these are not in our awareness. We're not aware that we're doing them. We simply have the experience of standing still or walking. What's more is when these usually subconscious adjustments are in our awareness, uh, it can make us feel quite uneasy or ill or unbalanced. 
There are many aspects of our life that make up our conscious experience without being in the light of our awareness. Uh, A simple example of this is if I were to tell you, um, all right, you're standing, stand on one foot and maintain your balance. That instruction is kind of internalized, and then your body does all the adjustments for you to maintain your balance on one foot. Uh, You don't have to think about it. And as a matter of fact, like according to... um, or to Julian's point, if you thought about the micro-adjustments and you tried to pay attention to how your weight was shifting and what you had to do and reposition your toes, you'd likely fall over. So his point is when awareness is introduced into the uh, the equation, sometimes it can actually be a bad thing. So one key concept of this chapter is just realizing to what extent consciousness is required or even participates at all in our daily life. Julian uses uh, an analogy of a flashlight to illustrate our bias towards consciousness. He explains that this aspect of our existence is actually a much smaller part of our life than we believe it to be. Yet, since we cannot be conscious of what we are not conscious of, we don't know what we don't know until it's in our awareness, we are like a flashlight that is looking around for something that does not have light shining upon it. Since anywhere that the flashlight points will have light, assuming like that the light bulb is the eyeball of the light, um, it will assume that everything has light on it. Um, it's like uh, it's like trying to picture the space behind your eyes. Like we can't see it, you know. So the flashlight is just going to assume because it can't perceive what is on the other side of it, that everything has light. But, as we're going to see, this is incorrect, at least according to Julian. He goes on to use a a couple different examples of cases where consciousness is not only not required, but like we said, it can be a hindrance even. Uh, For example, a runner in a race may be aware of where he is in relation to like other racers, but he's not conscious of the manner in which he places every step. He's not conscious of the position of his toes as they hit the ground, or the angle of his thigh to his calf uh, in respect to his knee. You know, none of these things are in his, in the light of his awareness. These are all subconscious, um, natural things that are occurring. Uh, Another example, a pianist playing a complex piece of music would have needed consciousness in the beginning to learn the keystrokes, Um, but at the the same uh, level of attention to the position of the fingers, once they've learned the song, would likely cause mistakes. Um, That is to say, like... A lot of awareness and attention is needed for when you're learning things, when you're processing instruction, but if you maintain that level of focus or awareness once these have become muscle memory and um, simple like motor recall, then it'll actually interrupt and be a hindrance to those things that you've learned. Um, so these are just a couple simple analogies that are meant to introduce us to reshaping our concept of what conscious awareness is and the level to which it affects our lives. Julian then goes on to provide specific examples of what consciousness is frequently believed to be or to be the cause of, and then he provides detailed critiques of each. First... Consciousness, he claims, is not a copy of experience. 
which is a pretty much a fundamental concept when it comes to the way we think about consciousness. Because, like to the earlier point, uh, earlier point that we made is that we need consciousness. It seems to recall our memories, and our collection of memories is the copy of our experience. So this relates to the concept of tabula rasa or that the mind is kind of a blank slate and that consciousness is responsible for storing and categorizing and recalling experiences in our lives. To explore this idea, let's stop and consider a couple things first. See if you can recall these things without looking. Okay, at a stoplight, is the red light on the top or on the bottom? Is your index finger longer, shorter, or equal with your ring finger? Don't look. Just see if you, if you know the answer for sure. How about your third toe from your big toe? Third toe in from your big toe. How many teeth can you see when you're brushing your teeth? So, we may not be entirely sure to the answer to these questions. I know I don't know how many teeth I see when I'm brushing my teeth. I couldn't even guess at the number or the toes. I have no idea. But um, Julian's point here is that if one of these things changed, you would definitely know that it's different. Like, think about your front door in your house. Maybe you... Well, front door, I would assume you'd probably know. Think of, all right, like for example, my in our house here, the basement door. Like, I don't think about whether it opens into the kitchen or if it opens into the stairwell, necessarily. But if it were to suddenly change, um, my muscle memory would let me know something is different. So... If you aren't sure, oh, I'm just repeating myself. Another example he uses here is um, if you aren't sure of the color of the floor in the elevator that you take every morning if you're in an office building, but tomorrow it was all of a sudden different, you would definitely notice. What Julian is trying to show here is the distinction between recognition and recall. He states, what you can consciously recall is the thimbleful to the huge oceans of your actual knowledge. This suggests that the idea of tabula rasa and consciousness being responsible for storing and recalling experiences is not really as critical to our daily life as we might think. Since we know some things that are not consciously recalled as evident by those questions. His point being, you you actually know so much, your body knows so much more than your conscious mind uh, is aware of or may be even uh, able to recall. Um, This idea that the mind is a blank slate might not be the whole picture. Furthermore, the mind will do a great job at telling us what must be the case, inferring conclusions from the most probable situation. This creation of the mind doesn't stop there. If you imagine the last time you went swimming, or you walked through your front door, you put down your things, you sat on the couch, you will likely recall these events in third person. You will maybe you'll see yourself as if you're watching a recording of you performing these actions. You will not, however, inhabit the same perspective that you had while actually performing these actions. This is because, again, your consciousness is only aware of a few aspects of the experience. You don't necessarily notice the feeling of less weight on top of your feet when you sit down or the tactile sensation of your hand leaving your coat as you rested on the hook. Our mind's capability for recreating experience and filling in the gaps is an extraordinary feat, but 
it's not required for performing those tasks. Pause for a drink break. I'm drinking product placement, Monaco Citrus Rush, and the wife is going to get a cup of cupcake red velvet wine. No. Okay, the next key argument is that consciousness is not necessary for learning. So, as you can tell, if I didn't introduce this um, well enough, is we're going through these common assumptions of what consciousness is required for, and then we're examining them closely to see, are they really required for that? Are they really important or are they even used at all? So this next key argument is that consciousness is not necessary for learning. This relates to what we discussed in part one of the series when Julian was trying to get um, his houseplant to quote-unquote learn to wilt at the signal of the light. Um, Here Julian addresses three kinds of learning and tries to examine if consciousness is required for the task. First, let's look at signal learning, uh, more commonly known as Pavlovian, Pavlovian conditioning. So if you haven't listened to part one, um, I recommend going back there um, and checking that out for the whole setup of this book. But in there, he talks about how he was attaching, I think, electrodes to his houseplant, and he would try to get it to wilt, and then he would, when he would try to get it to wilt, he'd signal it with a light, and then he was trying to then remove those electrodes and get it to wilt simply at the signal of the light. It's basic Pavlovian conditioning. So let's consider this experiment. A volunteer has small puffs of air blown into his eye to bring about a blink of the eyelids. Each time the air is blown into his eye, a light bulb turns on. As the number of cycles of this conditioning increases, the volunteer will quickly start blinking at the lighting of the bulb even without the puffs of air. So, this is another Pavlovian thing. You think about the dog being fed every time a bell rings, he'll start to salivate at the sound of the bell even if food isn't present. That's the same concept in this example. The uh, puff of air is blown into the eye every time a light bulb turns on. You keep doing this and doing this. You're conditioning the person to then blink just at at the light bulb turning on. This is quite unconscious, because if consciousness was introduced to the mix, the blinking would stop. Meaning, if you were aware of the fact that you were blinking in response to the light simply because you're associating it with the air being blown into your eye, it would be silly to just keep doing it. If you understood, like if you were aware of that, you could just stop it. Okay, so consider another example. If you are enjoying your favorite meal at your favorite restaurant, as the speakers in the room play a specific song, your mind will create an association with many aspects of this experience with pleasure and food. So the next time you hear the song, even if you're not consciously aware of it, your body will likely be releasing endorphins and you will have slightly more saliva in your mouth than usual. Basically the same Pavlovian dog. And this is a, you know, that example is simplistic, but it applies to a lot. Like if I think about our honeymoon trip to Portland, we listen to Amy Shark um, or Bourne's like those songs can trigger memories that you don't know are in there, but come to the surface, you know, uh, in response to that song. And then your body feels a certain way about it. So it's the same thing. It happens all the time. 
so back to that uh, example about the restaurant and the music, the association uh, kickstarts your body into preparing for eating and digesting. More saliva in your mouth because of the uh, unconscious association between the song that you're hearing and your memory of food. It kickstarts your body into preparing for eating and digesting, all without your involvement. What's more, if you are aware of this association creation beforehand and are thinking about it during the meal, the same learnings do not occur. If you were sitting in that restaurant eating your favorite meal in your favorite restaurant and that song comes on and you start to pay close attention to, oh, I might be creating an association between this meal, this restaurant and that song, it doesn't internalize in the same way. Okay, next, let's move to the learning of skills. Julian uses this example to illustrate his point. Take a coin in each hand and toss them in an air, uh, into the air in such a way that they cross paths and then they're caught by the opposite hand. It's kind of like juggling with only two objects. This can be accomplished pretty quickly with some uh, minor practice. The key here is this question. Are you conscious of everything you're doing while trying to learn this skill? Like the position of your elbows as you're tossing these coins. How are you positioning your pinky on each hand to adapt to catching the coin? Is it closer to your palm? Are you spreading your fingers out further? Where are your eyes moving to? What are you looking at as you toss these coins? The coins or your hands? So, Julian's point here is that consciousness will simply make the goal to be reached clear and perhaps a game plan, but from there it takes a back seat to what he calls organic learning. This is the same thing as like if you're standing and I tell you to balance on one foot, your consciousness which understands what I say to you, it's like it passes the instruction down to a more sub-level understanding, and you don't have to think about the instructions anymore. It's become internalized, and then all you do is balance on one foot, but your body takes care of the rest. So that's the point that he's trying to make here. The body, in many unconscious ways, takes over to create muscle memory and perform the task with success, standing on one foot, passing the coins from hand to hand. If you started thinking about where your eyes were, the position of your pinky, the position of your toes as you're trying to balance on one foot, you would undoubtedly drop the coins, fall over. So again, consciousness, your conscious awareness takes a back seat to these uh, performing these tasks. Again, too loud. Oliver is sleeping in the room right behind me, so I'm trying to stay quiet. All right, moving on. Let's consider consider complex skills. So we take we've taken basic skills. Um, like the simple, simple instruction, Pavlovian conditioning that works across, you know, all conscious creatures. Let's consider complex skills. Complex skills have the same lack and necessary lack, keyword necessary, of consciousness as the simple skills that we discussed. So let's look at two examples. Taken from the psychology of skill, uh, citation will be in the show notes, is a study that looked at individuals learning typewriting. Under examination of adaptations of behavior, it was seen that any shortcuts or changes in methods used to properly, uh, properly type were made in an unconscious manner. An adaptation brought on unintentionally with no awareness from the individual, except that he or she was all of a sudden performing better. So they're noticing that without doing it on purpose, the type 
the typist is making little micro changes to the position and movements of their fingers in order to complete the task. But what is in their conscious awareness is the task, not these micro adjustments of their hands and fingers. All right, next example. A study from the American Journal of Psychology in 1955 explained how one volunteer would be instructed to say as many words as he could think of. The researcher would, after every plural noun, for example, nod or smile or give some kind of slight affirmation. The volunteer would, without realizing it, learn to provide similar types of words that would bring about the affirmations of the researcher and would thus start providing similar words. So this this person is just any, it's just like stream of consciousness. Any word that comes to mind, they just say, just random associations. And what they're not noticing is that these little micro-affirmations from the researcher are actually influencing them to start coming up with similar words. And what would be really interesting to find out about this study is how fast are they saying these words? Like, are they doing it slow enough so that if they by chance were aware of the micro-affirmation, they would know what word it was associated with? Because if if they're going at such a pace that they wouldn't really know which word they say brought about the affirmation, and yet they still start giving similar words to bring about more affirmations. That would be another interesting thing to find out about that. But um, anyway, that's an example of the conscious awareness not even needing instruction because all they were told was to say whatever word came to mind. In the previous examples, the mind has been given clear instructions and then it internalizes it, comes up with some kind of like plan of action, and then the um, lower level, subconscious level consciousness Um, executes that plan. In this example, there was no instruction to bring this about, yet something in that person's mind was recognizing what was going on, even though the person wasn't aware of it, and was adapting behavior in response to that. Okay, pause for Monaco. Next, let's consider whether or not consciousness is necessary for thinking. This is a big one. Julian is careful to point out that the specific kind of thinking he's referring to could be referred to as making judgments or free association as it relates to thinking about or thinking of something. So not necessar- we're not necessarily talking about maybe deep, complex, analytical thinking um, that involves like a lot of abstraction and stuff like that. We're talking about the, kind of the thinking that was evolved in that last example. Um, like he says, free association or just um, like object recognition of paradigms, stuff like that. But uh, that's the kind of thinking that we're talking about. So in one study called the MARB experiment, which I tried to look up more information on. It was real hard to find. So if you're listening to this and you have any idea what the Carl MARB experiment was, if you could send more details my way, I would really appreciate it because I couldn't find anything on this. But according to Julian's book, it says that the MARB experiment, um, named after the researcher Carl MARB, Ask volunteers to lift two weights and place the heavier one in front of the researcher. Now, Julian doesn't explain how, but he suggests that this experiment proved that the judgment of which was heavier was never actually conscious. Like I said, I tried finding more um, more information on this study, but I couldn't I couldn't find much. Um, one counter argument is that perhaps the thoughts happen so quickly that the volunteer... Sorry, Grandma. (laughs) (laughs) 
my grandma was razzing me about burping on the last podcast. I'm trying to keep it under control. Um, so the, the argument is basically that like the, the thoughts about which weight is heavier is actually just happening so quickly that, um, the volunteer really isn't aware of it or isn't remembering it, I should say. Um, another experiment where a volunteer was asked to provide an associated term with one presented on flashcards um, as quickly as they could, so that's the key, um, except within a certain set of constraints. Um, that, that example, or that study, seemed to support the findings of the MARB experiment. The thinking seemed to be automatic once the observer had an understanding of these constraints. Um, this is kind of like what we were saying in the last example, is especially if they're going as fast as they can. Like in the last experiment, are they saying the words as fast as they can? This kind, this That would clue us in on whether or not they are truly aware of the affirmations that the researcher is providing. But here, in this experiment, it explicitly states that they're told to free associate terms with whatever term is presented on a flashcard as fast as they can, which indicates that they're trying to get the person to move past the possibility of being aware of any response from the researcher. Julian says, one does not... Sorry. He says, one does one's thinking before one knows what one is to think about. There's a lot of ones in that quote. Um, but that's that's basically what we've been saying thus far. It's showing the how it's like it's like the body's already prepped before the conscious mind's aware of it. For example, in the restaurant and food example, uh, yeah, example, your body could be preparing for digestion. Your mouth might start slightly salivating more than normal before you even recognize what song is playing. So that, to his quote, you do your thinking before you know what you're supposed to think about. Consciousness is required for grasping the instructions or goal, but once again, it takes a back seat once the brain starts the process. This same phenomenon can be seen in simple pattern recognition. In a series of two alternating images, with one missing at the end, your brain already knows what it should be looking before or looking for before you're conscious of my question, what is the next image in this sequence? Kind of like um, SAT or uh, I-STEP. You know, triangle, square, triangle, square, triangle, square, obviously. Like, it, it, you know this before you even have to be asked what's missing or what should be next. The very act of stating that question verbally is an example of a small amount of conscious intention bringing about the result of earlier automated processes, meaning your intellect is already aware of what you should know about the rest of that sequence before a researcher can even ask what should be there. It's like your brain already knows, oh yeah, the next thing in that sequence would be a square. Rolling. Can you check if the iPad's still rolling? I'd hate to just be talking this whole time and Thanks, Waff. Thirty four minutes. Sweet. All right. Onward. Julian goes on to argue that consciousness is not necessary for reasoning. So we've we've talked about some basic thought, we've talked about basic tasks, even complex tasks, we're talking about reasoning now. All of these fundamental things that we assume we need consciousness for as human beings. He uses some of the previous examples as proof for this argument. While we feel like, um, while I feel like I agree with him uh, based on the ideas that we just looked at, 
I do have to say that this might be a weak point in the book, and I really like this book. For example, Julian argues that a boy... I thought that was your wine. Julian argues that a boy tossing a particular piece of wood into a pond and noticing that it floats will know in future encounters with that same kind of wood that it will float. He is arguing that all of this happens rather subconsciously and does not require conscious gathering of past experiences. That much I feel like I can agree with to a certain extent, um, but then he, he mentions that this is simply expectation based on generalization, and it's common to all higher vertebrates. Here, I have two issues with this example. One, simply the fact that some mental processes that we employ can be found in most animals, I don't think serves as proof that the specific mental process has nothing to do with consciousness. Um, It kind of sounds like he's implying that animals are not conscious when he uses the commonality of mental process Uh, mental processes among vertebrates. Is it vertebrates or vertebrates? Vertebrates is the spine, right? A-T-E-S is the spine. A-E-S is like groups of creatures, right? Vertebrates. I'm going to guess it's vertebrates. Sure, my wife's coming in clutch helping me correct my grammar here. So, just just stating that um, something's common to all mammals, for example, I don't think makes it um, not require consciousness. And like I said, it kind of clues us into the idea that perhaps Julian doesn't consider animals conscious in the same way as us. A-T-E-S? Is the spine? Okay. All right. I was right then. That's what I was thinking. Vertebra. Okay. So vertebrates. 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 Say it so many times, it's not gonna. I'm not gonna understand it anymore. So yeah, it seems like it kind of clues us into the way Julian might mentally organize humans and other creatures. Um, Second, I wonder how right he is about the expectation based on generalization idea. Um, When the boy in his example picks up the piece of wood, it is likely that he will automatically recall the experience of seeing the wood float and will therefore conclude that the new piece of wood should float as well. Um that experience would look much different if the boy didn't actually know why he thought the wood would float, but he just had like a feeling that the wood would float. So both the automatic recall of the memory informing his paradigm of the buoyancy of the wood or the simple knowledge that this particular kind of wood floats requires another part of our mind to be serving up the information into the spotlight of consciousness. Um, I'm not sure that this uh, example uh, can be said to display a lack of necessity of consciousness. It may display that information can become so internalized that consciousness isn't required to recall it, Uh, but I think the spotlight of awareness would still be required, and it seems like Julian is implying that it's not. I mean, think of yourself in that experience. You pick up the piece of wood, and you, you don't have any recall of any experience of seeing wood of that type or that size or that shape floating on water. You just have like a hunch that it ought to float i've just seen i think that would be a really weird experience so i think something has to come into the light of conscious awareness for you to feel confident that that wood would float 
That being said, Julian does provide some examples of famous discoveries in which they came to the researcher without the effort of conscious attention. So this is getting back to... um, or even taking his previous examples a step for, uh, further because he said we're not really thinking about deep analytical thinking we're th- we're talking about kind of uh lizard brain level thought almost um but here he's talking about complex discoveries that happened without the effort of conscious attention here's a quote from the book um regarding the math- mathematician oh man i don't know his name P-O-I-N-C-A-R-E I think it's French P-O-I-N-C-A-R-E and the E has little not even going to try it it's French that guy, here's the quote that guy was particularly interested in the manner in which he came upon his own discoveries in a celebrated lecture at the Société de Psychologie in Paris, he described how he set out on a geologic excursion. The incidents of the journey made me forget my mathematical work. Having reached uh, some location, we entered an omnibus to go to some place or the other. At the moment when I put my foot on the step of the bus, the idea came to me. Without anything in my former thoughts seeming to have paved the way for it, the transformation I used to define the fusion functions were identical with those of non-Euclidean geometry. So that's pretty dense, but the point here is he wasn't cons- he wasn't thinking about the. I guess, mathematical problem. It sounds like he was on vacation. He was just sightseeing. And as as he's getting onto the bus, it just hit him all of a sudden, the answer to the question. That reminds me of um, this guy I used to work with at a church, Mark something. I'm going to tag him in this so he sees it. Um, He would do super complex math to calibrate like really um, fine-tuned measurement equipment and I remember him telling me once something like you know he'd go to bed not sure how to how to answer an equation to be able to calibrate his stuff and then in the shower the next morning he's not thinking about it he's just showering and then boop there it is. There's the answer. It's like some sub-level of his brain was still working on it and then just kind of served it onto the stage of attention. Okay, so here's a quote about Einstein uh, from Julian Jane's book. A close friend of Einstein's had told me that many of the uh, physicist's greatest ideas came to him so suddenly while he was shaving that he had to move the blade of the straight racer very carefully each morning lest he cut himself with surprise. So what Julian's trying to show here is that conscious attention is only required for setting up the framework of whatever problem is being considered. From there, the actual process of reasoning and deduction has no place in consciousness at all. The workings are all below the surface until the answer is served up into the light of consciousness, sometimes so abruptly that you may cut yourself shaving. Back to the basic example of stand on one foot. I give you instruction. Your consciousness is required to hear and internalize, to understand the instruction. Um, you know, if I if you don't speak if you don't speak Spanish and I give you the instructions in Spanish, nothing's going to happen. You, your understanding is required to bring in the instruction, but from there, it's all sub level. It's all your body doing its own thing. Your conscious attention is not and cannot be in the way. Sometimes, pause for Monaco. Okay, this chapter closes with what I think is the idea that sets up the rest of this book. 
Julian recounts all the aspects of living and learning that do not require consciousness, such as experience, signal learning, judgments, creative reasoning, etc. He then suggests that if these reasonings are correct, there this is pay a special close attention to this part because in this point in the book the whole thing shifts so you know this this cro- uh, covers a lot of sections in the book this whole explanation as to what consciousness isn't required for but then the gears shift so he suggests that if we're right about this that consciousness isn't required for a lot of these base level things key point here. There may have existed in a period in human history where man went about doing all the things that we do without being conscious at all. And don't let your paradigm of what the word conscious means here interrupt this concept. It's not, obviously, it's not that they were not awake or like aware of themselves, but conscious in the sense that we're describing here. So I'll say it one more time because this is a fundamental aspect of his book. There may have existed a period in human history where man went about doing all the things we do without being conscious at all. The majority of the rest of the book, which I still haven't finished, but I've been skimming through it, um, deals with this concept, which I had originally planned on going through this book like just in its entirety, but one, I don't know who's going to want to listen to like a five-part episode of one book, um, or five-part series, and two, this aspect of his book is really like the meat and potatoes of the book, so I don't really want to give it away. Um, it's uh it's available on scribed i'm sure it's available on amazon so pick up a copy for yourself once you get to like this middle part middle section of the book he just goes so deep into research and discoveries into ancient history that he thinks supports this concept oh two for two um it's just mind-blowing Um, some of the research that he comes across. So, I'm not going to do a part three uh, of this series because I don't want to give away the entirety of his book and it would do an injustice to his book for me to try to condense the fundamental concepts into just an episode. So, pick up a copy for yourself. I'll put some links in the show notes for you to find it on Amazon and maybe I can link to it inscribed if you want or if I can. Um... But as far as this podcast is concerned, I'm going to take a break from this and um, we'll talk about some other things in the future episodes. So this is a pretty good stopping point um, because Julian has explained, like we kind of break through the paradigms we have about consciousness. Um, From here, he really goes on to like I said, talk about research that shows what ancient people's lives were like and really the origin of some ancient um ancient god characters what we talked about in the previous uh, episode regarding this book he mentions how there's one structure i don't remember which side of the brain it is but there's a structure let's say on this side of your brain that is responsible for speech and controlling the mouth, right? So that that structure in your brain has control and say so over this aspect. There is, according to Julian, a similar structure on the other side of the brain that we, I guess, believe has a similar job, except it has no say so over motor control or speech. And this is what he kind of weaves through the rest of the book, is he's arguing, I'm not going to explain all the research to support it, but the basic idea is that he's arguing early humans didn't have an internal narrative, 
an internal monologue. We we didn't have that inner voice um, in the way that we think of it now. Right now, we consider our inner voice basically like a mental reconstruction of our actual voice we just use as a tool for thinking. What he's saying he thinks happened is that in ancient history, that other structure actually connects through the corpus callosum, which is the dividing part of the brain. It actually connects to the other side of the brain through a series of really densely packed nerves. Um, And what he thinks is happening is that it was active, but what it was doing was causing an inner hallucination of a voice in our head. So imagine... Like, if you take a moment and imagine the sound, like, think to yourself any kind of thought, and you picture, you probably picture your own voice as you're thinking it. Now imagine that same thing occurred so loud that you thought you heard it in the room with you, and you had no control over it. It's a bit like, it almost sounds like schizophrenia. It's an audible hallucination. And he thinks this was the origin of consciousness, bicameral mind, meaning that the mind was divided into two sections, where one section had control over thought and motor control and speech, and the other section was separate, but it was generating this audible hallucination that was being picked up on the other side of the brain. And because it was so close to the person, it's because it feels like it's coming from inside of you, And often it was a authoritative, booming voice that that he thinks these people heard. It kind of induced submission to it. I mean, if you think about not having no other framework for understanding what's going on, you might think that some other being is talking to you or instructing you. And he draws conclusions as uh, to the shape of early idols, um, how a lot of them had their, when they would be crafted, carved, carved with their mouth open, diamonds set for their eyes. He's saying that they all connect to this idea of the person hallucinating this inner voice. Um, so it, it kind of ties in with a lot of... Uh, like social contract theory and you know like the work of Jonathan Haidt where we're looking at the origin of religion and politics uh, um, in relation to unity in the group Um, so it's super super interesting um, which is why I need to get a pick up a copy for yourself I think it's like a two book volume the thing is huge Um, but like I said, I, it it doesn't make sense to go into all the research that uh, that he uses to support that, but that's where it leads to are are these deep explanations. And the other thing I wanted to address is in the previous episode, I I mentioned think about this idea: what is a memory that you have completely forgotten? Wife's giving me the death glare. glare. Yeah, burp three again. Three for three. No, sorry, Grandma. Three for three. <clears throat> it's the Monaco. Let's try this again. All right. This is. I need a whiteboard. I'm going to start doing episodes with a whiteboard behind me so I can draw things out. This is the concept that we introduced in the last episode. What is a memory that you have completely forgotten? Can you think of a memory that you have completely forgotten? And I don't mean, I think I said this in the last episode, I don't mean like, oh, there was this person I used to work with, but I can't remember their name. No, I mean like, you... In that example, you've completely forgotten that that person exists. Can you drum up a memory that 
you have completely forgotten. For me, anyway, the answer is no. It's like I, you don't know what you don't know until it's in there. There's memories that I'm not conscious of that I don't know I have until something brings them up. And then either I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Or I'm like shocked that I remember that. Like I didn't even know I knew that. This concept is kind of an undertone in Julian's book, which is another reason you need to pick up a copy and just read it in its entirety, is that in relation to these examples we've gone through and that question I'm asking you, it seems to present this concept of the way the mind works in a threefold pattern. There is the forefront consciousness that takes in the instructions in our examples, right? Or takes in the experience. And then in between it and the lower level consciousness, we'll just call it sub-level consciousness, there seems to be a stage. And both parts of our consciousness is watching that stage. And you can think of it in this kind of metaphysical sense, but you can also think of it in a very literal sense. If you consider examples of, albeit extreme examples, of severing the corpus callosum and say, um, seizure patients, um, I don't know if it's still a thing, but that used to be a thing to do to help stop seizures. In extreme cases, it seemed like an entire other consciousness was there in that person. I can't remember if we talked about this in the last episode, but there's been studies where a person would look, let's say, into a box and their vision is divided so one eye can only see this half of the box and one eye can only see this half of the box. If you're just listening to the podcast, um, think just left and right divisions of the box using my hands to talk. And this person has had their corpus callosum severed for whatever reason. So a researcher would tell them, all right, whatever image you see in front of you, use, let's, uh, use your hand to find, um, that same image in this group of like little figurines or whatever. And it seems that the consciousness that interacts with the world is limited to one side of the brain. So when the brain is severed, really only one eye is serving information to that consciousness. Because in those studies, let's say, let's say your left eye sees a tube of toothpaste. So you would be conscious of that image of a tube of toothpaste. And so you would move your left hand to find, let's say, a toothbrush. Now, you can't consciously see what your right eye is seeing because of the severing of the corpus callosum. But the right hand, let's say it sees uh, a bottle of shampoo. So your right hand will find, I don't know, a sponge or like a bottle of conditioner. And the the person undergoing the test is unaware of what the right hand reached for, but it was directly associated with the image it perceived. In other extreme cases, the, the person undergoing the surgery will have lost motor control of, let's say, for example, the right hand, and they can be asked questions from a researcher and that right hand will write out answers to the question that the patient has no understanding of, no awareness of, has no control over that hand. There's this other consciousness that seems to be coming to the surface when those two hemispheres are severed. So, in this example, we've got the consciousness that interacts with the world. We've got a consciousness over here that deals with the inner workings of our body, and then we have a stage that they share. Because 
if you can't remember a thought that just completely seems to be completely gone from your memory and then like a sound or a smell or a sight triggers a memory that you forgot you knew your inner workings be it a high operating level of consciousness or not have triggered the recall of some memory and then served it into the light of consciousness so that the part of consciousness that is seems to be you that greets the world is all of a sudden aware of it and then it works the same way in reverse in relation to his examples the consciousness that greets the world takes in the instruction places it on the stage of awareness the sub-level consciousness takes it down and internalizes it and maybe i'll talk about this in another episode but like the implications of what the implications of that framework of understanding of how we work is huge i mean for one if we take it to the extreme example it's like there's two of us in here it's like there's the consciousness that interacts with the world and then there's the consciousness that just takes care of the physical body and is kind of along for the ride but we're both in here and we're both affecting the body if i same thing with like if you're super stressed if you're if you're just going over and over kind of stewing over uh some stressful uh, stressful event or something thinking about it over and over and over can cause your body to be go into a stressful flight or fright uh, fight or flight response even though you're not in any danger like this can just happen in the comfort of your own home this shows that there's a there's a demarcation point of these two bits of consciousness of their responsibility and what they have control over but they are linked the consciousness that's interacting with the world is passing information to the stage of awareness that your body's consciousness is taking and internalizing and is making decisions based on that information which is why mindfulness is so important mindful uh, meditation can be so helpful because you're stopping that feedback loop of passing information across that stage Because it is a loop, then your body starts to get stressed, and you start thinking about these things more often, which makes the body more stressed, and then we just go deeper and deeper and deeper. So you start thinking about the ways that shifting your understanding of how your mind works will affect the way you move through the world. That's part of, you know, say what you will about his examples about how consciousness is needed for certain things, but I think that's kind of a super important undertone in this book that he doesn't directly address, at least not that I've seen. And I, while it might be super huge that it could be true that we used to not be conscious in this way, that I feel like is more interesting in a almost like archaeological sense. It has bearing on how we understand the past, but it doesn't necessarily influence the way we move through our current moment. Yet, the unaddressed concept of how our mind works in what I would say is almost a three-part chamber instead of just a bicameral thing literally does influence the way we move through the world. So, I think it's a pretty important book. Um, Again, I'll link to The Scribed, if I can, in the show notes. I'll put a link to it on Amazon so you can find it um, to get a copy for yourself and dive deep into his research about um, what he thinks supports this this argument about us not being conscious in the past. So, don't forget, Patreon is up and running. Uh, We do have the one tier five bucks a month um if you want a sticker or a coaster just hit me up um i've got some extras still got the mailing list going on um stay tuned for the updates on the book because it's getting real close and i think i might try doing something with the mailing list where 
I send a free copy of the book to some beta beta readers um, that I pull from the mailing list. So if you want to be a part of that, go to godofhoneybees.com. There'll be a, I think there's a pop-up that asks if you want to join the mailing list. You can scroll to the bottom of the front page and sign up for it. I think there's even another tab for it. Get on the mailing list. You'll get these episodes in text format, so you can read them at your own pace. Um, you don't have to have headphones on or listen to it or watch it on YouTube. Um, then you can just save the PDF for later reading, share it, send it wherever you want, whatever you want to do. And then you'll be on the list for, um, if I'm able to do a number of free copies to send to beta readers to get some feedback, I'll be pulling those names from the email list. So, godofhoneybees.com to get on the list. Um, the book will be launching in the near future, hopefully. And thanks for listening. In the next episode, um, it'll likely be um, a meditation. I've got a couple uh, of those written and lined up, but we'll see. So, this has been God of Honeybees podcast. I'm Justin Herb. Thanks for being here.